What's up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and today we're on episode 30, which is insane. We made it to 30, man. 30 episodes in three and a half months, and we're doing supernatural horror to continue our two weeks of horror segment for October. And so this episode is going to feature It, chapters one and two, The Babadook, It Follows, Sinister, and Insidious. And this episode of Rares of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. And I'm really excited to talk about all these movies, especially It. The remakes were phenomenal. Babadook is really cool. It Follows is one of my favorite horror films of the last decade. And Sinister and Insidious are really cool, very interesting uh, supernatural horror movies, too. Yeah, and aside from the It movies, the other four are um, original ideas, so it's always fun when they're not adaptations, especially if they're not remakes as well. Yeah, I agree. And before we get started, if you like our podcast and our content, the best thing you can do to support us is share our podcast, either the YouTube channel and subscribe to it, or the audio versions on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. We're mostly word of mouth guys, so please share us with your movie friends, your your family members. This is a cool show that we really think they'd be into. Really cool. Again, subscribe to the YouTube channel, hit the notification bell, leave a comment on YouTube, leaving five-star reviews on the audio streaming services. Obviously, you can only do it on Apple Podcasts, but that really helps us so much, especially the written reviews. Helps us get seen by other new podcast listeners. For real, I know everyone says it, but it really does work. We also have a Patreon, so you can support us monthly there. Um, Each patron gets specific perks depending on the tier they subscribe to monthly. Uh, The top tier patrons get a monthly shout-out on the podcast, which we're going to do right now. So thank you, Caitlin Signorelli, Mason Taylor, Harrison Ball, Logan Schroeder, Harry Roscoe, Nate Moore, Riley McDonald, Michael Caranja, Caleb Fleming, Justin Weimer, Andrew Sullivan, and Angel Mendez for being our top tier Patreon patrons. Thank you so much for the support, everybody. We love you guys. Thank you so much. Anyone who hasn't signed up, feel free to check out our Patreon. You get perks like personalized videos, so check it out. Let's get into this episode of Supernatural Horror, starting with It Chapters 1 and 2. Both were directed by Andy Muschietti in 2017 and 2019, respectively. It Chapter 1 follows in the summer of 1989, a group of bullied kids band together to destroy a shape-shifting monster which disguises itself as a clown and preys on the children of Derry, their small main town. And these movies are sharply directed. Muschietti did a phenomenal job for this being, It Chapter 1 being his second feature-length film that he directed. Uh, The first was Mama, which starred Jessica Chastain, who reprised another role in It Chapter 2. Uh, The first one was wildly successful, making $700 million box office on a $35 million budget. Um, It grossed $123 million just opening weekend in North America. That's crazy for a horror movie. Yeah, it set the horror uh, record for opening weekend. The second film, uh, $75 million budget, $473 million box office, which it's it's $200 million less almost, but it's... It's $200 million less, but it's phenomenal, and that's a really great uh, gross. Anything over $200 million is really good for a movie with this budget. Yeah, for a horror movie especially. Yeah. So over a billion dollars box office on a total budget of $110 million between two films is absurd. Yeah, Muschietti, like you said, he made Mama. He actually made that as a short film and um, showed it to Guillermo del Toro, who loved it so much. He actually produced Mama, and Jessica Chastain also starred in that movie, and then... With this, these adaptations of it, 
I'm sh- like you and I, um, we grew up in the 90s and we were like emotionally scarred by the miniseries of it. Yeah, and it was just like a different look too yeah. in aesthetic. So that that miniseries, it um it was scary, but you look back on it, it's kind of cheesy, especially the design of Pennywise. But it was 1990 yeah, again. Yeah, so it was 1990. And it was a TV miniseries, so it wasn't a film. For BBC. Yeah. And then um when this came out, they perfectly captured Pennywise in and updated him to the 21st century in terms of his design. It's gritty. He's terrifying looking. The design of Pennywise is just brilliant in this. He's got those cracks on his forehead. He's got that crazy hair. And his costume, it has like a Victorian-esque look to it. And it's very muted colors. It's silver and white for the stripes. And so it's just a very grim look for Pennywise. My favorite part about the design is probably those red streaks that go from his mouth lead all the way up past his eyebrows. It adds like an edge to the character, you know what I mean? Yeah, almost like he's a doll or something. Yeah. And it obviously is a Stephen King adaptation based off his enormous novel. Uh, and like you said, Pennywise was originally played by Tim Curry. And the new It is played by the very talented Bill Skarsgård, the younger brother of Alexander Skarsgård, who you'd know from uh, True Blood and a bunch of other movies in, in Tarzan. Uh, Gustav Skarsgård is also an actor, and they're the son of Stellan Skarsgård. And this is kind of like the Swedish royal family of Hollywood actors. Yeah, they're all great. Yeah, they're all very, very good-looking family, too. Yeah, Stellan Skarsgård, their dad, is probably the most accomplished Swedish actor behind Max von Sydow. Yeah, he's amazing. Yeah. This was really Bill's first big role in Hollywood, and it was absolutely phenomenal and a terrifying performance as Pennywise. And one of the things that helped him get the role were these, well, two things were these two natural abilities he has with his control over his face. So he does that. The one thing with the eyeball where he can move one of his eyes in a different direction than his other eye, that's not CGI. That's actually something Bill Sarsgaard can do. Mm. And so that was actually accentuated a great effect in the film as well as this lip curling ability he has. So Bill went into the audition and what set him apart from a lot of the other actors besides this phenomenal performance is he can naturally do that that lower lip curl that gives Pennywise like it. Yeah, yeah, it's like really weird looking and almost looks fake, but that's not CGI either. He can do that, and they accentuated that big time in the film whenever Pennywise was on camera. It's something that Skarsgård has used to to scare his little brothers uh, throughout their childhood, and now it ended up working perfectly for the character because it adds this physicality to Pennywise that other actors couldn't have added because you can't think of Pennywise now without that weird smile that he can create. Yeah, so uh, Andy and Bill both approached uh, the character of Pennywise as more of like an animalistic or primal being. And there's lots of scenes of like Pennywise is drooling and seems like he's just salivating at the mouth because the prosthetic teeth was actually making Bill drool on Mm. set and they decided to use that to accentuate that primal feeding necessity of Pennywise. And also... Clowns are already pretty scary in their own right, but they just made it on another level with the clown in this film. And I think the strength of the performance is how Skarsgård changed his voice in Pennywise. And that first scene where he's talking to Georgie and you finally you hear him speak for the first time and his voice is just terrifying and it changes in pitch and it goes from growly to sinister to trying to be friendly all in, all in one. And he has these moments where he just kind of like zones out. Like he seems to be like that animalistic side of him, like you mentioned, just kind of takes over for a moment and he kind of freezes. And you can just see like the hunger in his eyes to to kill these children, to eat them and to feed on them. 
the opening scene to it chapter one is one of the most terrifying I've seen in theaters because we obviously know of it from the past drama and obviously it's just infamous in horror novel lore in writing and uh, in the horror community and so we have the scene where we know something horrible is going to happen. We saw the trailer. We know about Georgie. And then just we also feel like Georgie. We're, we're curious about this clown in the sewer. And, like, he seems kind of nice, but also he's <laughs> <laughs> kind of terrifying in the same way. So we're curious to see what's going to happen if we keep talking to the clown just like Georgie. And I love how they lit it where only his chin and mouth are in the light. But his eyes, even though his eyes are in the shadow of the sewer... They're still glowing. Yeah. It's crazy. And then it's just obviously terrifying when eventually it lures Georgie as close as possible and takes a bite and rips his arm off his body. And it's just horrible. And it's a perfect way to set you up for the movie to be like, this is what the movie's going to be about. We just bit off a seven-year-old's arm. Yeah. Watching, you ready for this? Watching Georgie scream and fall to the pavement with his arm severed and he's just bleeding out. It's horrifying. And then there's that great shot where... Um, Machete goes to a bird's eye view, and then you just see its arm reaching across the sewer and stretching for his leg, and then he just pulls him under. It's an incredible scene. You know, it's you know what the scene is, what's going to happen if you've read the book and seen the miniseries. But still, they they filmed it and made it in a way that was just terrifying and shocking. Still, and modernized, like you said earlier. Yeah. And the interesting thing about Bill was. They had filmed half the film uh, already before he even started shooting because he spent so much time with the machete and uh, the costume and makeup department, like depicting the character and getting it set up and figuring out how to act it out and everything. And it took that much time. And then the children in the movie didn't even meet Skarsgård or see it until on set for the first scenes they had to shoot with them. They had already filmed half the movie themselves. And so the first time they ever saw Pennywise was as Bill Skarsgård. And there are all these rumors on set of what he looks like. And the kids were like, <laughs> they're terrified to see it. And also super excited and anxious because like, they're like 13 years old while they're filming this. So they're like, mm-hmm. oh my God, what's it going to look like? We hear, we hear he's doing this. We hear his, his lip looks like this. And then on set, he's terrifying. And it's like almost real fear and reactions that the kids are feeling. And the kids often were so scared by Skarsgård that a- after each take and after scenes, he had to like joke around with them and calm them down a little bit to just make them relax a little bit because it is terrifying. Yeah, and Muschietti actually um, purposely separated them until their initial scenes together in order to keep the reaction real when they finally saw him as Pennywise. So they didn't know what he looked like on purpose. So what is it and what are its powers? Well, so Pennywise, well, Pennywise is, is his creation. But it, I would say, obviously is some kind of alien being that has, for some reason, maybe somehow crash-landed to Earth or traveled to Earth on purpose, where I think it maybe could be stuck on Earth, and now it's just spends every 27 years feeding on, on fear and feeding on humans to survive for its like long hibernation. It's like a, kind of like a, a squirrel or any animal that hibernates where when it's awake, in the summertime, it just gathers as much food as it can in order to be able to sleep its long sleep during hibernation. So I think it has a similar um, life cycle to those kinds of animals. Yeah, exactly. It's explained in the, in the books and the movies. It's a, a millennia ago. It crash landed in North America in a cataclysmic space event. And we eventually find out in it Chapter 2 that it's an alien being. But through, if, you've never seen any, if you never saw the original or read the book, the first movie, it doesn't seem like he's an alien yet. Um and so the powers of it include shape-shifting, and we're told that we can never truly comprehend its true form. We can't understand it because of our tiny human brains, so we can never see what it really is. But um, while on Earth, it transforms into forms that human can, humans can see and that humans can understand. Mm-hmm. 
specifically things that terrify humans in public because like you just said it feeds off fear and also feeds off human beings it's similar to freddy krueger and then um the bogart the, Bo- the bogart and harry potter where it it can read um your mind and understand what fears what you're most afraid of in the world and then it can physically alter its shape to become that thing exactly so telepathy is another power of it so it can read our minds it can see our deepest fears and understands us so well because of that it also has mind control and the perfect example is um the members of the losers club feel in chapter two like after they leave Derry and they're living their lives they have basically forgotten what's happened in their past except for mike because he's still in Derry. Hmm. but everyone else totally forgot until they got the phone call and then they get back to Derry. And even while they're back in Derry during that dinner scene at the Chinese restaurant, they still don't remember what happened. They don't even really remember why they're all there, but they're just having a great time. And then the memories come back, and then it starts to lure them back in. Mm-hmm. And it can also avert people's attentions from his carnage, from its carnage, because otherwise the horrors of what's happening in Derry would be a global phenomenon. They'd be news stories. That's why all the adults in the story are actually... Um, completely oblivious to the horrors that are going on because every 27 years so many kids go missing so many deaths happen and no one's every every adult turns a blind eye and they're completely oblivious to anything that's happening and also they they've become so influenced by its powers that they themselves have become horrible people and they're kind of monstrous in their own way every parent in this movie is a kind of monster to, to their children because of this influence that has that it has over the community and an example is that television show the program that plays in several scenes on on the TVs in everyone's homes, all the parents are watching it, and it's like a kids show with an, an with a woman who's like the main lead of the show, and then multiple times it can be seen in the show as well, and then the dialogue that the kids and, and the woman are, are saying are like horrible things like kill them, kill them, kill them, and also um, Penny Pennywise influences uses the show to influence kids. There's a scene where the woman in the show says. Go, it's fun to play in the sewers. It's safe and fun time to have with your friends. Go to the sewers. So he's like influencing media in the community to, to get kids to go to the sewers. Exactly. And also teleportation and moving objects. So he can appear anywhere he wants at any time and yeah. move things around. And so why do you think it chooses the form of a clown of Pennywise? Because he can shapeshift. It can shapeshift into anything. But for some reason, it's always Pennywise in his in his preferred natural state. I think it's because it has to blend in with its surroundings as well as to seem also scary, but also non-threatening at the same time. Like, for example, when it first arrived, um, it was during when Native American tribes were around in the area, and it appeared as, I think it was an eagle. Mm-hmm. So the the Native American tribes... They were obviously terrified of the eagle because of the power an eagle has, but they don't really seem too threatened by it because it wouldn't really attack them. So I think a lot of people felt the same way as the clown when it was in the early 20th century when he started doing the clown routine or the or the yeah, end of the 19th century. Yeah, the traveling circus. And so again, the traveling circus, clowns are kind of weird and scary looking, but also it's a good thing. It, it can entice people into it. Especially kids, they're, they, they can be drawn to clowns as a non-threatening form of entertainment yeah so it's kind of a fascinating but also fearful element at the same time i i think that as well but i also think that it enjoys being a clown it's like created this perverse evil clown and it i think it just generally enjoys being pennywise more than anything else it has fun as pennywise and so i think that's why he's always the clown Ah, that's a good point that's interesting like it's like like it the entity is like 
very simple-minded, but it's just pure evil and anarchic and and cruel, and it enjoys toying with its victims, and it seems it it has a lot of fun out of what it does and, and takes pleasure in it, and so I think the manifestation of the clown represents that. Absolutely, I agree yeah. with that. And um, yeah, in, in terms of the clown, the and throughout the film, the the movie has amazing special effects, incredible makeup, and and. I think those are probably the two biggest strengths besides Bill Skarsgård's performance to bring Pennywise to life in the modern world, in modern cinema. Yeah, and they were actually, just like with Heath Ledger playing the Joker, there were these ridiculous news story rumors saying that um, Skarsgård developed mental issues after playing after playing It and wasn't going to sign on for a second one, but obviously... As we learned, he had a, a he had so much fun playing Pennywise and signed on immediately. And they were actually he and the director were actually planning out it chapter two before it was even greenlit by the studio. Yeah, I think people again these are actors. They're playing performances and they're doing something they they love. Heath Ledger had a blast being the Joker. Bill Skarsgård, I'm sure, had a blast as Pennywise. The only thing that I've read about him being plagued with because of the role is nightmares. So he said he consistently had nightmares for a couple months, at, like of Pennywise attacking him in his dreams. But even act, not, even Bill Hader had nightmares about it, yeah. acting opposite of Pennywise. So, I mean, that makes sense because when you're, especially in filmmaking today, when you're when you're in that character and the wardrobe and the makeup is so convincing is you see you become transformed in the mirror as Pennywise and you don't even recognize yourself Yeah, because of today's technologies and today's advancements in special effects and makeup. I'm sure anyone would have nightmares over that, but he's not crazy at all. He's a normal guy. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And also I think a thing that adds to Pennywise's imposing nature is the fact that Bill Skarsgård is Mm 6'4". So he's huge already. So seeing a a giant tall clown like that is just absolutely terrifying. Wouldn't have worked with Dan Radcliffe for sure. (laughs) I love you, Danny. All right, but let's get into the child actors because we had some amazing performances in this movie. Mm. So we have Bill is played by Jaden Martell. Richie is played by Mr. Stranger Things himself, Finn Wolfhard. Bev is Sophia Lillis. Mike is Chosen Jacobs. Eddie is Jack Razor. And Stanley is Wyatt Uris. Everyone was really good in this movie. And, like, Mm. you'll see, I mean, the acting in this movie is almost as good as Chapter 2. And we're dealing with some real heavyweight actors in Chapter Mm 2. Obviously, the acting is better there. But they did a great job for being kids in their, what, early teens 12 13 years old yeah and i even i even uh, worked with chosen jacobs i took photos of him for a magazine and he's he's a very nice kid and seemed very bright um so i think they because it was such an extensive acting uh, uh casting process they found smart intelligent young people who were able to play the roles well and uh i think the best performance of all the kids is obviously finn wolfhard as richie the kid is yeah. hysterical constantly he, swearing yeah that, i feel like that's what finn wolfhard must be like in real life he's just uh. trying to always be funny and like getting a joke and I, a lot of the the dialogue between him and eddie a lot of that was improvised so mm. in this movie does such a good job with humor because a lot of horror movies the humor can sometimes take away from the tension that they're trying to build and the horror and the suspense but the mo- the, ho- the humor in this film complements a lot of the horror going on and they go together so well specifically that scene where they're stuck inside that haunted house richie and eddie are in the haunted house and they show up at those three doors trying to get away from pennywise and the three doors say scary scariest and not scary at all and then they go inside the not scary at all and yeah. it's terrifying it's yeah. just it's just little things like this complement the horror so well and it kind of it makes the the terrifying nature of the scenes a little easier to watch yeah because it lightens the mood a little bit which adds to I think why it enjoys being a clown because it enjoys playing games on its victims and then in terms of the humor like you said with Finn Wolfhard and the kid who plays Eddie with their improvised dialogue if 
it worked so well because it sounded like how kids really talk. Because that's how we do talk yeah, when we're 13 years in so, old. In so many movies, young young kids like teens and, and kids in elementary school, they're always written in a way that doesn't seem real because I think... For a little too PC. Yeah, too PC, but I think a lot of people hide, hide, try to avoid the fact that a lot of young kids, they can be very vulgar. Um, I think it, it might be the most vulgar in your life is when yeah. you're like 13 years old. Because when you learn how to swear and what these words mean, you you want to say it as much as possible. So swearing often is... That's what we did a lot when we were kids with our friends. We swore all the time. No filter at yeah. all, man. So I think that's the reason why since all these young young uh, teen movies are, are PG-13 or PG, you never hear kids swear. And so listening to kids swear regularly throughout the film added to the reality of like, oh yeah, this is how kids really talk to each other. Yeah, that's legit. We, we're always screaming at each other yeah. like that. Super relatable. Something really fun that the filmmakers did in this film is they actually hid Pennywise in the background of lots of shots throughout the first act of the film. It's pretty much showing that Pennywise is stalking the kids in every scene, everywhere they go. It gradually builds up more and more. Yeah, and so examples are um, when Ben is going through the historical book there's a photo of an Easter egg hunt from like the 19 early 1900s, and then there's an image of Pennywise in the background behind the kids. And then after the kids save Ben, bring him to that alleyway to, to fix him up, there's a mural behind the three of them. At first, it's just a plain mural, but then halfway through the scene, Pennywise's face is visible right behind Ben's shoulder, right on, on the graffiti, menu. right? Yeah, right on the graffiti, just staring at them. And then in the opening scene with Georgie, after Georgie goes down the basement steps, there's two little lights behind the steps in the darkness, and it's actually Pennywise's glowing eyes. When Ben is reading through the historical books in the library, in the background, the librarian, that older woman, is just staring at him with a huge smile on her face because Pennywise has like possessed her and is just stalking him and watching him. And then in Bev's house, there's a little shot of a clown doll that looks just like Pennywise. And then when the kids are talking in the Derry Town Square and there's a little show going on on stage in the background, there's a clown on stage. And then when Richie mentions that he hates clowns, he looks back and the clown stares right at him and reaches out a balloon animal that it made. So these are all instances of Pennywise has always been lurking in the background, watching and stalking these kids throughout the first half of the film. Yeah, it's just throughout the film, it intensifies until he starts manifesting himself into their reality, like in front of them. Yeah, and the, and the red balloons are like the perfect notifier of Pennywise is near you, he's around you. And the red balloons are basically sometimes just little notifiers of he's near you, or also they can be presents that Pennywise sends to you. You never know what you're going to get inside the balloon. Sometimes it's terrifying. Sometimes <laughs> it's not that scary. But these balloons also lead to exposition for the film, and it shows that Pennywise like kind of wants these kids to learn more about him, about the past, about where he's from, because... Maybe on your maybe to the average audience member, it seems like forced exposition, but you got to remember, Pennywise or it feeds off fear, and he's trying to make these kids more and more terrified of him or more terrified of it. And the more they learn about him, the more terrified they do get of it. So it can seem like forced exposition, but from my from my opinion, it seems like Pennywise does it all on purpose. Specific, specifically, like Ben when he's in the library, and the balloon leads him to more information. After he sees Pennywise, like obviously people are like, why doesn't Pennywise just kill them right there? Because he needs to build up that fear to feed off of. And that is actually why he doesn't always just kill the kids right away. Like especially in that haunted house scene, which is a great scene. And he always has one or two of the kids cornered at, at certain times, but he doesn't kill them because he's trying to terrorize them before he can kill them. Because he, he's feeding, he feeds more on the fear than the actual physicality of eating them. He, he needs them to just be 
terrified of him in the moment. So that's often why, even if he has a kid within his grasp, he doesn't kill them right away. He needs, yeah. he needs to scare them. And that's ultimately how they have to defeat Pennywise, is they have to face their fears. That's what they learn. So in, cha- in chapter one, the group has to come together and face their fears, whereas in chapter two, the group has to come together and face their past. Mm-hmm. Towards the end of the film, the climax, the way they defeat Pennywise is they face their fears, and they realize that in order to v- defeat Pennywise, they have to vanquish their fear of Pennywise, which eventually, in the, in the climax at the end, shrinks Pennywise down to a tiny, minuscule clown, or wherever he is, whatever entity he is. Each character kind of, they're on their own paths before they come together as the Losers Club to, to realize that they're all seeing these visions of, the, of this clown, yeah. and they all have their own types of visions of it wherever they are or it tormenting them in different ways yeah and the most like terrifying and kind of hilarious one of them all is is uh mike is getting beat up by the bullies on that creek and then he looks down river and he sees pennywise chewing on a human arm and then he uses the arm and just waves at mike it's like what the fuck it's messed up and so they're all seeing these visions of this clown and they they come together and realize that they're all seeing the same clown and the same clown is tormenting them all yeah and that leads to that haunted house scene which is probably my favorite scene in the movie where like he splits them all up and they all encounter different aspects of the house especially i think my favorite is richie's when he goes into that room filled with all the clown dolls and it feels like pennywise could be any one of them just waiting to pop out and he opens the little chest and it's a little doll of him and he's, he's like a corpse but then he closes it and then pennywise jumps out of it and it's a great shot because he, he lands down. He's kind of like this like superhero kind of landing. <laughs> and then you, he's, um, Muschietti zooms in on him. And he's just got this horrific looking evil smile on him. And it's like, oh shit, this is Pennywise. Yeah, and the thing with Pennywise is the kids are really the only ones who can see what's going on. Again, he makes all the other adults and all the members of Derry like, unable to see what's happening or, or, or oblivious to everything. And the perfect example is... Um, we have a, a bunch of scenes with um, Bev and her very abusive father, and specifically the scene where the bathroom just becomes covered in blood that Pennywise, she pulls the thing out of the drain, just mm-hmm. blood comes spewing out everywhere. And that's his way of tormenting Bev. And um, the abusive father comes into the bathroom and doesn't see any of the blood all over the walls, doesn't see the blood covered with her. And then we have this this scene where the kids clean up all the blood, which doesn't really make a lot of sense to me. Yeah. But I guess it's like a fun little trailer kind of thing, and it, it's like a little... A little bonding little, moment. Yeah, getting together and, yeah. And, and doing something together, but it still doesn't make sense. If no one can see it, why are you going to clean it up? Yeah, and then all of the kids' main fears, they extend... It's not just what you physically see. So, for example, Bev's fear in life is growing into maturity and adulthood as a woman, and that's why it's blood as the physical manifestation of that. And Eddie... Um, his biggest fear is a leper because he's afraid of of dying of sickness and illness because of what his mother has how his mother has raised him of being fearful of everything and, and germs and thinking that he has um, pre-existing conditions which he doesn't really and then Mike's fear is um, those burnt up corpses because his parents died in a fire and then Stanley is um, Stanley's is that painting in his dad's office which represents um, his fear of his bar mitzvah because his dad is the rabbi and he's not living up to his potential that he thinks of him. I think Ben's is the headless body chasing him through the library because he looks in the book and there's that, he finds a photo in the tree. There's just a, a, ch- a child's head, a severed head in the branches. So I think that's why he sees the, the severed body chasing him. 
And so the the finale of it chapter one is the kids again come together, they face their fears, and they have this epic battle with it. And we see all these amazing special effects again of of it shape shifting. He's like that giant spider monster, and he comes and attacks him in different ways. And it's it's a, a really fun climax. It's terrifying, and it's also satisfying the way they they work together to defeat it. Mm. But the problem is it hasn't been defeated. Which obviously we know was going to happen. We we know that it was going to be a, a a two part movie, and so it chapter two follows the same group of the losers club twenty seven years later. Because again, every twenty seven years, that's when it, like you said, comes out of its hibernation, and now the crew has to, the lo- the losers club has to come back together to defeat it for good. Because Mike make, calls them all on the phone and reminds them of their blood o- blood oath that they all made to each other to come back if it ever comes back to haunt Derry again to stop it. It's because after the opening sequence where it attacks that gay couple, Mike sees written under the bridge, Pennywise has written, come home. And so he knows that Pennywise is back. And in terms of the casting, I don't think they could have done a better job with casting adult versions of the child actors because they all look and feel like adult representations of them. Yeah, that's one of the strengths of this movie is they did such a great job making it seem like what would all those characters and all those kids and even just the actors themselves, what would they look like if they were older or, or how would they portray them? And like Bill Hader is Richie is like the most perfect casting out of all of them for sure. He actually got cast because um, when asked about who he wanted um, to play the adult version of him, Finn Wolfhard campaigned for Bill Hader on social media. And that got the producers to contact Bill Hader about the role. Yeah, the filmmakers actually asked all the uh, child actors who they would want, you know, in a perfect world to play them. And Jessica Chastain was actually the first cast. And she was also in uh, talks to star in Chapter 2 while Chapter 1 was still filming because she already had a professional relationship with Muschietti. But obviously, like, uh, Idris Elba was almost attached to star, but it's kind of a smaller part for someone like him. And Christian Bale turned it down because... It's Christian Bale, you know. He's not going to play a part of an ensemble with with four other guys. Was he going to play Bill? Yeah, I think um, he would have been Bill. No, one of them. Yeah, he's too big for that. Uh, James McAvoy's awesome though as yeah. Bill. He does a great job. I think McAvoy did it because he's actually a massive Stephen King fan and has read pretty much all of his books. Yeah, and that's why Idris, Idris Elba was almost in it because he's he did Dark Tower and also a huge Stephen King fan as well. Yeah. But they didn't get everybody. But Jessica Chastain and uh, Bill Hader were top choices of of um, the children because the mm-hmm. girl who plays Bev. Um, Sophie, Sophie, right? Lewis, yeah. Yeah, Sophie wanted Jessica Chastain, but obviously that worked out too. I mean, if you need a redheaded actress, who's it going to be? Her, Bryce Dallas Howard. Yeah. Again, though, uh, the acting is a lot better in It Chapter 2. And I like It Chapter 2, but my personal opinion is It Chapter 1 is a lot better. Um, not saying that, again, It, it Chapter 2 is a bad movie. It's great. It just doesn't have the emotional connection, I feel like, for me with It Chapter 1. I think because... The plot and storyline of It Chapter 2 is kind of bunched up and, and goes back and forth a lot because there's so many flashbacks, which I understand you kind of have to to tell the story about the children and, and the more they learn about it and what happens after they defeat it. But also, constantly going back and forth in time with each character eliminates the ability to create like one long storyline and one long plot. And it's kind of just all pieced together. And the runtime is absurd. It's 169 <laughs> minutes. And these two movies combine five hours and four minutes of runtime, which is, it's it's kind of exhausting because It Chapter 2 does have some slow and, and, and tedious beats to it. Yeah, but actually, it actually is more accurate to the book because the way the book is written is it's always flashing forward and backward throughout the entire novel. It's not like the novel is two halves. It's always inter- intersecting between 
adults, child, children, adults, children. Well, yes and no, because the first half of the book is still like the whole coming of age journey of like a chapter one. Yeah. And then that being said, I think that some of the kill scenes in this film are absolutely horrifying, especially that first one when, when he lures that little girl under the bleachers and he's just lit by like the little match. Um, and then also probably my favorite kill scene is when Bill chases that kid into the fun house, the mirror house, and he's trying to save the kid. And the kid's like, why are you following me, mister? Why are you fo- trying to stop him earlier? Yeah. So he thinks this, that Bill is like a weird stalker, old, old guy trying to like, I don't know, do whatever he wants to him. And then they're both, they're, they're stuck in the fun house and they're separated by a pane of glass. And then all of a sudden Bill sees Pennywise standing right behind the kid between another piece of glass and he's just licking the glass. And then he starts bashing his face into the glass and eventually breaks it and then just destroys the little kid. Yeah, and we can tell that Pennywise has already had interactions with this kid in that kid's own world because yeah. he talks about how, oh, they're not, uh, clowns aren't in the sewer, they're in the bath drains because he's obviously been visiting him in his own home. Yeah. So you can you can foresee or, or guess that Pennywise is probably haunting almost every child in the town of Derry. Oh, definitely, 100%. And although chapter one follows the story of these children who are faced with the hardships of this monster and fear, chapter two, the opening of the film is about all these adults who are facing their own real life monsters and their real life hardships. You know, like um, Jessica Chastain's character, Bev, is dealing with an abusive husband. Bill is struggling with his um, with, the, with the adaptation of his novel to screen in the film production. Richie's a, a famous stand-up comedian, but he's also dealing with, with uh, being a closeted homosexual. And he's in love with Eddie. Then Stanley is so haunted by it that he ends up killing himself when he gets the phone call from Mike. And then Ben's a very accomplished architect, but you can still, he's troubled from his past and also the ability, and, and also because he's still in love with Bev. Yeah. For example, he kept that note inside his wallet for 20 year, 27 years, which is a little crazy, Ben. For a little obsessive. It's a childhood crush. Let it go. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, never even kissed. Stephen King also has a cameo in It Chapter 2. He plays the, the owner of the shop where Bill goes and gets his bike back. Because in It Chapter 2, each of the characters of the Losers Club has to go back to their past and find a talisman. Because Mike brings them back and... Re- and uh, reveals to them that the only way to stop it is with this ancient ritual called Ritual of Chud. And so in order to fulfill the ritual, they all have to go back to their past, find their talisman from their childhood, and then come together with their talismans to perform the ritual to stop it. Mm. And the bike is uh, is uh, Bill's talisman. It's something like that they loved intensely or had a, a moment from their childhood that yeah. meant a lot to them. Yeah, so for yeah. Bev, it was the, the poem that was written to her that she hid inside the wall. Yeah. They kind of separate Bill on purpose a lot throughout the film. He kind of goes off on his own one-man missions to stop it, which prevents them to, from performing the ritual until towards the end of the film. But also, it for me, it kind of annoyed me a little bit watching it where it's like, why is Bill just going off by himself? Why aren't they staying together? Obviously, Richie wants to get out of there because he doesn't want to die. But it seems like if they all just... if they could have just made a better plot of them coming together sooner to try to stop it. Yeah, I think um, if they had sped up the story a little bit and got... if I think if they had gotten together within 30 minutes of the film, it would have been better. I, I, they don't have that that dinner in the Chinese restaurant until like 50 minutes into the film. So it's if, if it had a faster first act, 
it would have been a, a better movie. Yeah, I think they spent way too much time setting up their exposition of their new lives. It took yeah. a little too much time for me because, like you said, it's it's a long time before they get together. That's what happens when your first movie makes seven hundred million dollars, though. You get all the money you want. Yeah, and and they he they let you do a hundred sixty nine minute runtime. <laughs> I think that's why the film wasn't as, as successful as the first one because the reviews obviously weren't as great. But when you have a movie that's gonna be that plays at two hours and forty minutes, it limits the number of showings you can do each day as opposed to a movie that's two hours and 15 minutes so that movie the first movie could maybe in one screen it could probably get like six viewings a day whereas the second film maybe three screenings a day so it limits the number of times you can watch people can actually watch the movie physically that's wicked smart dude yeah that's why studios are always trying to keep movies at around the two hour mark because at around two and a half hours, you, it limits the number of screens, the number of times you can show it. Unless you're, it's a Chris Nolan movie, and yeah. they're just going to put it on every screen in the theater for a week. <laughs> or Lord of the Rings. Those can be as long as they want. And again, so in chapter two, this is where we find out that Pennywise is actually this creature, this being, alien organism from outer space. So in chapter one, they have to face their fears. In chapter two, they have to come together and face their past to have this showdown with Pennywise. In the in the novel, like you said, it's the ritual of Chud is this psychic battle and there's actually no way to properly show that in the movie it would have been too confusing for the audience so yeah they like bite tongues and like say yeah, things yeah it's yeah weird. it's on a psychic realm it happens so in the film i think they wisely made the ritual fail and so the reason why they failed was because pennywise killed like those native americans who tried it at first so mike tricks them into into coming and thinking that this ritual will work and he thinks that their belief that it works will what make it stop Pennywise but yeah. it doesn't work at all and so they have to literally do the same thing they did in the first one where they have to overcome their fear of Pennywise in order to belittle him and make him shrink down in his stature and then the lack of fear is what weakens him and gives Mike the ability to literally just rip his heart out of his little body and so it's the same same ending as the first one so the number 27 is often associated with this story. Obviously, the film was released 27 years after the original 1997 television miniseries. In the book, it's mentioned that it returns to Derry every 27 years. Jonathan Brandis, who played young Bill in the original film, died at 27 years old. This movie was released one month after Bill Skarsgård's 27th birthday. Three of the childhood actors in It Chapter 1 are all 27 years younger than the actors who portrayed them in It Chapter 2. The official U.S. release date was 9-8-2017. 9 plus 8 plus 2 plus 0 plus 1 plus 7 equals 27. The second film was released on 9-6-2019. 9 plus 6 plus 2 plus 0 plus 1 plus 9 equals 27. Creepy. Pretty cool stuff. Yeah, some of that was on purpose, like the release dates for sure. Um, another fun fact is that Finn Wolfhard was filming Stranger Things Season 3 at the same time as It Chapter 2. So he was bouncing around between sets for an entire summer filming both of these things. There's a lot, obviously this novel is over 1,100 pages long, so they couldn't fit everything in. And so obviously plenty of scenes were deleted for the film. But I think the most famous thing that they deleted from the novel was after the children defeat Pennywise the first time, they actually have an orgy in the tunnels, in the sewers. And obviously that would have been extremely strange to see in a movie. And so they, they wisely cut that out. Yeah, because I think, they're children. I, I think Kerry Fukunara wanted to make that in his version. I think that's why the studio cut him from the film. Yeah, no one would have wanted to see that. Yeah. It's just pretty messed up, too. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a weird thing. Yeah, it's a really bet, poor character 
development too for Bev in the in the book too. Yeah, and also I, I I'm not a fan of how with Bev in the film they could have because they changed everyone's um, adulthood um, backstory except for Ben who's an architect in the book. Everyone else's is different, and and Bev stays the same as the book. Where I felt like if they should have had or maybe not be in another abusive relationship because yeah. it, it felt like. It was it's like, a cliche to have yeah. a female character in multiple abusive relationships and yeah. kind of just like a damsel in distress. But yeah. she is a strong character throughout the film and like is one of the leading leaders of the Losers Club yeah. in defeating I, it. Yeah, I would see that's my biggest thing that I don't like about the second one is like they could have given her a different character backstory as an adult. I think it would have worked better. The adult losers in It Chapter 2 wear only one outfit each while they're in Derry. So they each had 50 to 60 variations of the same costume. <laughs> But again, Chapter 1, one of the best horror movies made in the last decade for sure. Mm-hmm. It Chapter 2, very good movie, but I wouldn't put it in that class. For It Chapter 2, the child actors, they're actually three years older than when they were when they filmed the first It. But the scenes for the flashbacks, they had to be, fil- they t- took place in the same time period as the first film. So they actually digitally de-aged all the child actors to be the same age as they were in the first it because obviously a bunch of them sprouted up in height and um, were growing like facial hair and stuff. So they had to train the the actors to make the pitches of their voices higher. And also d- they digitally de-aged and shortened them for the film. Yeah. Well, and physically and practically they had people wear like sit on, stand on boxes or wear, yeah. wear shoes with platforms or yeah, something yeah. like that. Because I think every, like Ben specifically, the kid who plays Ben grew like six or seven inches in that three year period. I bet. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over their technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. This is a great brand, guys. Awesome products. They sent Anthony and I their performance packages. This isn't exclusively just for men. I I highly suggest if you have brothers in your life, your boyfriend, your father, this is a perfect gift. The holiday season is coming. Any guy would be ecstatic to get anything from Manscaped. I'm telling you, it's legit. I will never use another clipper buzzer for the rest of my life. Let's move on to The Babadook. In 2014, debut feature written and directed by Australian filmmaker Jennifer Kent. The film follows Amelia, who lost her husband in a car crash on the way to give birth to her son Samuel. Samuel's constant fear of monsters and reaction to overcome his fear doesn't help her deal with the stress of being a single mother. Things get even worse when a strange book shows up at their house called Mr. Babadook, a monster who eventually hides in the dark shadows of their house, haunting their everyday existence. This film is such a great, unique, original story idea for a horror film. And Jennifer Kent made a film about grief and put it in the context of a supernatural horror film to great effect. It's it's a fantastic movie. Yeah, this this is an incredibly intelligent story because when you analyze it and see what it's really about, it's not about a possession. It's not about being haunted by a monster. It's like you just said, it's about grief. And we all deal with grief in our lives. Some people's grief is more devastating than others, but it's something we cannot avoid as human beings, no matter how hard we try. The only way to conquer grief is to face it. Yeah, some people, like you just said, it affects people differently. Some people 
grief overtakes their lives and it dominates them and they're they suck them to the inability to overcome their grief and their pain from their past whereas others learn to control their grief and and keep it buried the Duck stars Essie Davis as Amelia and Noah Wiseman as her son Samuel. And both of these actors give amazing performances. And Noah Wiseman is great as Samuel. Uh, one of the best like childhood actor performances I've seen for a kid in his age range. He's like eight years old in this. Six. Six years old? Yeah. Wow. He's, he's amazing. He's very emotional um, and violent. And he does a great job. And the thing with Sam is that he's so erratic and he's violent and he's loud. And he's, he's annoying. And it... His behavior is so bad that it keeps. It's part of the reason why Amelia kind of can't stand being around him, even though he's her son. She kind of doesn't. She hasn't loved him like a son since his birth at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Kent expertly crafts the first act of this film, and the first half is the storyline through the lens of Amelia, whose reality is blurred because she's suppressed her past and suppressed her grief and she hides and refuses to acknowledge the death of her husband and one of the ways that she does this is obviously Samuel was born on the night that her husband died in the car crash on yeah. the way to the hospital so Samuel has never had a birthday on his birthday he's never celebrated on his own birthday he's always had combined birthday parties so that's one of the ways that Amelia hides her grief she also hides every piece of of memory, every photo of her husband in the basement. Yeah. And so, for the example about the birthday and not giving Sam the birthday on his actual birthday, because of the, it's the same, it's the death day of her husband, it's because Amelia can't help but associate the death of her husband with, with her son. And so that prevents her from ever being able to establish a, a true motherly relationship with Sam. She's never been a mother to him because when she looks at him, she thinks of the death of her husband. And in some ways, that maybe his death is caused by Sam's birth. You know what I mean? Exactly. Because in throughout the film, she starts to see qualities in Sam that remind her of her husband. Like his overconfidence and charisma, which if you look at it from a different point of view, is actually not a negative thing like Amelia sees it. But Amelia only sees negative things about Sam because she doesn't want to be reminded of her husband. Mm. And again, the first act is through the lens of Amelia, and you kind of even feel bad for her for having such like a troubled child. Like Sam is perceived in the movie in the first act as being erratic and violent and uncontrollable. He seems like just a bad kid. And this poor mother is just trying to work so hard at her job. She's never had any time to herself. But the second half of the film is much darker, and that's where we have the entrance of the Mr. Bubba Duck book. On the store, on the fl- on the steps of their front door, and this begins to start take hold in their lives, and through the lens of Amelia, are being like possessed by this Babadook person in the shadows and the corners. But really, the Babadook is something that she created. The Babadook is a manifestation of her grief. She's created this book, and that's why the book has no publishing information. The book has no ending. It's not finished. There are empty pages on it because she hasn't fulfilled her life yet in her course of actions, which will be added to at the end of the book. And now it turns where you have empathy for Samuel, start to feel bad for Samuel because Samuel isn't afraid of a monster. He's afraid of his mother because his mother is the Babadook. And that's actually why he is so erratic in his behavior and why he's such a troubled kid because he was raised by a woman who didn't love him. And so obviously... He's going to act abnormally from other children. He's going to have problems in in psychological and violent tendencies. And then 
So on top of what you just said about um, she created the Babadook, I think the Babadook is a, a manifestation of the monster growing inside of Amelia. And so throughout the, the second half of the film, the Babadook is trying to convince Amelia to kill the dog, to kill her son, to become this violent, horrible person. And as the second half of the film stretches on, it's beginning to get a tighter grip on her and gain more power in her because the monster inside of her is growing more power. And that's what's causing Sam to be so fearful of her is because the Babadook isn't the monster of the of the house. Amelia is the monster. Yeah, and we she doesn't see it yet. The first time she gets a glimpse of herself as like this crazed person is there's a, a murder in the neighborhood of a, a similarly of a mother killing a child and there's a news report that she's watching of local news station and she sees herself in a window of her house and she's just giving this weird eerie maniacal smile to the cameras and that's when she finally sees what the hell is that that can't be me why am i looking like that mm-hmm. because she's she still doesn't understand that she's the monster she's the one causing the mayhem in samuel's life with her actions but she at first thinks that Samuel is the one causing all these strange things to happen. For example, when she finds the piece of broken glass in her food, she thinks Samuel put it there. But what, re- what really happened is that that piece of glass refers to the car accident that she was they were in in the opening of the movie. Because the movie opens with the car accident and then she's floating through the, through the air after the crash. And then there's broken glass flying all over the place. So that's a correlation to the glass she finds in her food. So she's manifesting her past traumas into the present. Yeah, and you can really get a good sense of where her mind is at and how it's so dysfunctional in the scene where she's clearly very tired and, you know, a single mother working nonstop and she's never had a day off in her life and her boss tells her to go home early from work one day. And so she, for the first time in years, has like some hours to herself. She doesn't have to look after her kids. She doesn't have to work. And... Instead of going home and like taking a nap and relaxing, she goes to the mall and she gets ice cream. And the whole sequence and the whole scene, it's like almost like a fairy tale or a dream. It's very blurry. Her vision's off and on. She seems almost like she's high or something because she's really never experienced anything like this. And it shows her that she's been trying to escape her reality for so long. Mm -hmm. And it, again, gives you a sense of of this mindset that she's in. And then on top of that, as the Babalik is growing in power in the household, in her, in the possession of her, it manifests in her behavior towards Sam, where she starts becoming very aggressive and violent. And when he asks, when he tells her that he's hungry and is and wants dinner, she yells at him in a horrible way and tells him to like go eat worms or something. And so the monster inside of Amelia is growing and it's beginning to lash out. And so it's going to get to the point where it becomes a violent and aggressive encounter with Sam. Yeah, and it becomes pretty obvious that she's the Babadook at the point where Sam tries to call uh, a neighbor on the phone for help or someone on the phone for help. But Amelia locks all the doors and windows and cuts the cable lines for the phone so he can't call anywhere. And now we realize that Sam the whole time has really been a prisoner to Amelia's actions and Amelia's mental instability. Yeah, but unbeknownst to her... Throughout the later half of the film, Sam has been developing these tools and weapons to fight the Babadook. So he has that that slingshot thing. Slingshot. He sets up the the rope on the bottom at the top of the staircase to trip the Babadook, and then 
Amelia thinks that it's his imagination is just going wild and that he's doing all this crazy stuff because there's something wrong with him. But ends up, but what ends up happening is that just as Sam planned, he built all of this stuff to defeat the Babadook, and he uses it on his mother when she eventually on that on that fateful night she becomes extremely violent and aggressive with him, and so he shoots her in the arm with that little arrow, and then he knocks her in the head with the slingshot. And then as she chases him down into, into the basement, she trips over that tripwire that he set up. And then after this, he ties her up while she's unconscious. So his plan to capture the Babadook was actually his plan to capture his mother. Yeah, and it, and it worked. And we have a very emotional scene because Amelia's tied up with rope. And she doesn't really fully understand what's going on yet. And Sam, you can tell, Sam still loves his mother very much. And he hugs her. And he knows that... She's not right, and she's dealing with the death of, of his father, too. And so you can tell that he really loves his mother, despite the fact that she's been turning into the Babadook. And this is where Amelia has to defeat the Babadook herself. Similar to it, where the children have to face their fears, Amelia has to face her demons. She has to face her grief. Finally, she has to accept what happened, and she has to tell the Babadook to go away. She has to stop it, and she has to live her life accepting the fact that the father and the husband are dead. And she finally, she uh, vomits the black sludge out of her out of her body, which is her expelling the grief. And she and Sam embrace because she's finally chosen to be a mother to him for the first time in his, in his life. And I love the ending of this movie because Sam finally gets his first real birthday party on his birthday. And then we show the, the film ends where she goes down into the basement with this this bowl of worms and she just puts it on the ground and she tells the, the basically tells the the Babadook to eat and this is her feeding her grief so she's momentary so at the time in order to keep her grief in check and to control it she has to feed it a little bit every day so she's feeding her grief and then the bowl just goes away yeah it, like on its own and that, that's why the Babadook is in the basement because essentially you can't eliminate whatever intense grief you have that you've gone through if you've gone through trauma or tragedy Everyone experiences tragedy. And the thing with grief is you can't erase it from your life. But rather than letting it dominate your life, you can put it, you can lock it in, your, in the basement. You can bury it down within you and keep it in check, like you said, in order to move on with your life and carry on. Um, and so that's what she does is she locks her grief in the basement and keeps it in check by giving it just a little bit to, to eat on here and there. But it has no effect on her um, life from now on. And also... In that scene at the end, when she first goes into the basement, the Babadook is a POV shot of the Babadook and it flies into her like it's going to attack her. But she calms it down with her words because she's finally, she's able to suppress her grief by being a mother. And so she has this like motherly calm um, speak, um, dialogue with the Babadook to calm it down before it starts eating the worms. So now that she's finally decided to become a mother, that helps her handle her grief because her grief because she has an important role to play in Sam's life now, and she needs to put the grief behind her. And this is a phenomenal debut by Jennifer Kent. I really like this movie a lot. It's uh, definitely one of the best horror movies made in the last decade or two decades. If you've never seen it, I highly recommend it. And it's got a lot of really deep themes that you can miss if you're not paying attention to. Did you know that Babadook is an anagram, and it, it can spell out a bad book? <laughs> Yeah, and, and in the language of Hebrew, Babadook means he is coming for sure. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, but this is a great horror film. If you haven't seen it, 
Um, it wasn't released theatrically in America. It just went straight to Netflix when it was released in 2015. But it's one of the most original, unique, fantastically made, well-shot horror films we've seen. Yeah. Very artistic, a lot of artistic cinematography and, and filmmaking, and it's, it's great. It's a good time. Let's move on to It Follows, directed in 2014, written and directed by David Robert Mitchell. After a seemingly innocent sexual encounter, 19-year-old Jay finds herself plagued by strange visions in an inescapable sense that someone or something is following her. Faced with this burden, Jay and her friends must find a way to escape the horrors that seem to be only a few steps behind. This film... Was a two million dollar budget, very successful with twenty three million dollar box office, with even just a limited release. Stars Micah Monroe as Jay, who is terrific in this movie, and she sort of is like one of these like new modern scream que- scream queens because she had uh, a few back to back great horror movies. She did The Guest, which is a lot of fun. Oh yeah, you're right. I liked her yeah. in The Guest a lot, and then she she made this, and she's also um, been in a, another horror film with Bill Skarsgård, ironically, who's also in this episode. She was in the Independence Day sequel as well. Yeah, so she's awesome young actress. She brings a very natural like vulnerability to her, to her characters, and you combine that with her soft beauty, and she makes a very innocent and relatable person on camera. Yeah, it follows, has the strength of having an incredible premise for a movie monster, where this thing is. Whatever it is, the entity is invisible to everyone unless you've been cursed by it. And the way the curse spreads is people spread it to each other by having sex with each other. And then once you've um, been given the curse, you can see the, the entity. But just like it, it can transform and morph its shape and persona into all sorts of shape, uh, into any kind of person it wants to. The interesting thing about It Follows is... The monster, the entity, wherever you want to call it, it's basically a new sexually transmitted disease that has no cure in a hundred percent fatality rate, <laughs> and it creates this like linked chain of human emotion, desperation, and fear because it's not everyone who's who's had sex and been cursed with it is being followed. It's just one at a time. This entity is going down this chain of connected human beings through sex one at a time. Sometimes going back up the chain, sometimes getting coming down mm. until eventually, I guess it finds its final victim, which will probably never happen. Yeah. And um, uh, sex is a main theme in this film, and is the director trying to say there are negative effects to having sex at a young age, or sex without intimacy or love is meaningless? Um, it's clearly a major theme, and something that a lot of young adults and teens deal with in their lives because sex is a huge factor in a lot of things that young adults do in their lives because a lot of things we, we choose or paths we choose in life or decisions we make are related to sex and attraction. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it could be, it could be that it could also be the loss of innocence and the loss of adolescence after having sex for the first time. And then also the demons of our, if we have demons in our childhood, they can haunt us into adulthood and uh, we can, they can like dominate us and, and end up maybe killing us in certain ways. Um, so I think the monster can represent all sorts of things based on, I mean, what you what you personally think and perceive from it. I think it's they keep it open and they, they never really reveal what the monster is, how it got there, what it does. I think they keep it a mystery so that you can, and they keep it ambiguous so you can make up your own interpretation of it. Yeah, and obviously it has a lot of similar themes to past horror movies like uh, sex is a big one because although in like other horror movies it's all about the virgin and losing your virginity this movie isn't about it's not like you lose your virginity it's just you have sex with someone who's been cursed so you don't have to be a virgin to become cursed with 
the it follows entity. Yeah. What's funny in this movie is the guys are just like constantly trying to have sex with Jay under these horrible circumstances. <laughs> like people are dying and like horrible things are happening, but Greg and Paul are just like trying to sleep with her every chance they get. Guys are going to be guys. <laughs> And this was very close to being a perfect movie, in my opinion. This is one of my favorite horror movies in the last decade, for sure. I just think that the ending with the with the uh, whole pool scene and, and the way they they um, lure the it entity to, to try to stop it that kind of was a little bit of a a downstroke in in climactic to, a to, uh, tone for me. Mm. But aside from that, this movie is phenomenal. It's terrifying too. Yeah, I would say that. Um, I also agree that it. It, it could have been a great, great film. It's still a very good film, but I think that the mystery element is great, but also it, it kind of affected the, affected the monster in a way where we weren't really sure what it can do or what it can't do. Because in the first half, all it does is walk, but then it can, but then throw, stuff into then the it can pool. throw stuff into the pool. And then also it's like, if it's, like, how does it, like if you fly a plane to a different country, how does it find you there? Because, I mean, yeah, it can become certain things but does it just would it is it intelligent enough to know like what kind of plane to like to book a plane or to walk on the right plane at the right time even though it's invisible like all oh, this plane's gonna take me here and then i gotta use my gps to to find them here <laughs> so is there is there a way where the the entity can can like psychologically like psychically find these people that have it the curse so i think if there was something like that to show like how how the entity can track down the people that are cursed i think I w- it would have helped the audience a little bit more Exactly, but still, again, very good horror movie. Awesome, yeah. awesome monster. Tons of similarities to horror classics. Like that, it could. It, some people, I would even put it in the ranks of like Halloween and Friday Thirteenth. So like Halloween, we have the slow pacing psychopathic killer that will never stop once it kills its victim. Uh, with that synth heavy score, Freddy Krueger with like things that only the victims can see. And the soundtrack to this movie is phenomenal. Mm. It was made by Disaster Piece. And the music is very much the heartbeat to the film because it's incredibly important to bring intense fear to an audience member in horror movies. And and it could be hard in this kind of movie because a lot of the times the entity or the monster, it just is like a harmless or not non-threatening being or entity. Like sometimes just like some old lady walking towards you Easy to escape. in the distance. It's like obviously you just run away. It's like yeah. kind of weird looking, but still. But as soon as the, the entity or it is on camera... Disaster pieces score blast. We get those crazy synths, and it's so loud, and it adds so much fear to every scene that the entity is in. Yeah, I agree. It's an amazing score, and also this film has a, a pretty perfect first act. So the film opens with that that girl in the neighborhood, um, and she's wearing high heels with pajamas, and it's a a weird thing to be wearing. And she's walking, she's backtracking on the street, and then there's a neighbor who's asking if she's okay. Are you? Are you? Is, are, is everything all right? And she keeps saying she's fine. And then we we don't even know what's going on. And then she drives in her car, and she keeps looking back as she's driving. And then it cuts to her dead body on the beach, and her legs been bent backwards. And that's the opening of the film. And you're like, what the hell happened? Yeah, it's a really interesting opening. Yeah, and then it, and then the rest of the first act is Jay and Hugh are are dating and. They have a couple of dates and things just seem a little weird. And Hugh keeps like looking back and like checking things in the background. And then when they're in the movie theater, he ha- he has them leave the movie early because he keeps looking back and he sees something in the theater. And then when they're walking to his car, he keeps back he keeps looking back in in fear. And we're like, what exactly is he is going on here? What's he afraid of? 
And then it cuts to that great scene where they have sex in his car and everything seems fine. And then she's hold, she's hanging her head out the out the door of the car and, and she seems like a very happy in the moment. And then he just comes up behind her and, and chloroforms her with a with a rag and you're like, Oh, what is happening? And then that leads to that the best scene in the movie, I think, is where she's strapped to the to the wheelchair and he gives her the rundown of what exactly is going on with the monster and the curse. And then the monster ends up, the entity shows up as that naked woman. And it's an incredible, great first 20 minutes of the movie that I think is the strength of the movie. Yeah. The first opening scene, their opening scenes are very crucial in horror films. And this is one of the best, best I've ever seen. Yeah. And uh, I love the way they shot this with, a lot of the film has these really wide lens shots. And I think the director really wants you to see as much as you can in the atmospheres and in the um, environments yeah. to see like, because there are little snippets that you can actually go back and watch and see little things that are going on in the background, especially in scenes where there are large crowds. And the opening scene is just that one camera and he pans like 180 does and goes 180 back and you're just watching this girl. The way they filmed this movie was great because again, look, watch it again, tons of wide angle shots. You can see in these crowded situations where the director purposely has multiple people will often be very far away, but just walking towards the camera, towards the characters and just... Uh, just in the back of your mind, you're thinking, is that or is one of those pe- things the it or the entity? And it's very scary when the monster's close in close proximity, especially when uh, Jay goes into her kitchen and the, the naked girl is in the kitchen. And then when she's trying to lock herself in her bedroom and, and you think she's safe because she's surrounded by her friends and her family. And that's the thing. Usually in horror movies, people are going to be fine if they're with people around them usually. And then the the entity just goes right through the bedroom, right behind her friends and her family, and comes right after her again. She just has to jump out the window. Yeah. And it's it's crazy, and it's such a good concept for a monster. And in terms of sex being a factor in how you spread the curse, sex seems to be something the monster uses as well, because when when the entity kills Greg, it has the shape of that older woman, and it seems to be like it has it straddled him and is humping him in a kind of way, and it interlocks its hands with his. So it seems to be having sex in some way with Greg as it's killing him. So maybe that's a way that it feeds on people. Interesting thought. Yeah. And the timeline of this film is kind of all over the place. And again, going back to the opening scene, the beauty of that opening scene is we don't know if it's before the story. We don't know if it's after the story. We don't know if it's during the story. So that's what's cool about it. You don't know what timeline we're bouncing in between. And even the director um, has like different types of objects from different eras you know in the in the scene where before jay's being possessed or being chased by the entity she's in her living room with her friends and they have this very old-fashioned television but one of the girls one of her friends has this like modernized like pocket reader book there's old like furniture and old portraits on the walls so we don't really know always what timeline or what what time in human history we're in or what even world we're in so it's cool because i love the opening scene you don't know where or when it's taking place yeah it's a good point but i love the ending because after the pool scene yeah after the pool scene because uh jay and paul end up having sex and they kind of aren't sure if they did kill the entity and then it has that great final shot where they're walking through the neighborhood holding hands and they have these looks on their faces like they don't feel like they still feel like they're in danger. And that last shot is we're leading them. And then there's a person like a hundred feet behind them, which is following them. Paul basically sacrifices his life and his future 
to be one step in line ahead of Jay in the inevitable chain of death of the entity to protect her and to also be with her in the way he ensures that he'll always be a step ahead of her also is there's a shot of him going to pull up next to sex workers too. So he's trying to keep the monster a step ahead of them at all times. The things guys do to get laid. <laughs> Again, same thing with Ben in, in the... It. You got a childhood crush. Just let that go, man. <laughs> great, great movie. Highly original monster, and it's truly a terrifying film. Um, great second feature from David Robert Mitchell. Amazing score and music from Disaster Piece. Check this movie out if you haven't seen it. If you haven't seen it in a while, go watch it again. Let's move on to Sinister, directed by Scott Derrickson in 2012. Who's been? Who's made a lot of awesome movies in uh, horror wise? He's made a Exorcism of Emily Rose, and he also made Doctor Strange. Sinister follows crime writer Ellison Oswald, played by Ethan Hawke, who moves his family into a house where a horrific crime took place earlier, but his family doesn't know. He begins researching the crime in hopes of writing a book about it. Oswald examines Super 8 film footage that he finds in the house to help him in his research, but he soon discovers there's more than he bargained for. This is a $3 million budget with an $87 million box office, so very successful independent horror film. That's a big return on investment. This film is extremely disturbing and dark and very scary at times. And Ethan Hawke, I love seeing him in a horror movie. I don't think he's ever done it before. He's one of the most underrated actors alive. And I think they created a really disturbing and horrifying villain, Bagul, in this movie. Yeah, I'll watch anything with Handsome Hawk in it. <laughs> I love that guy. And he's such a great actor. And it's great when when high-quality, top-talented actors like him take a divergence from their normal projects or the normal types of movies they'll do and explore something else with like a horror film, a small-budget horror film like Insidious. And he doesn't get a ton of like leading man roles. He's usually like second, or he's usually like dual build or second build in, in most of the movies that he's in. So it's great to see him be able to be the main character throughout an entire film. Yeah, absolutely. And he plays uh, a Truman Capote type writer where he writes true crime novels based on grisly murders. And in his in his point in his career, he's. His, he's become a lackluster author. His book sales are going down. He had an original big hit 10 yeah, years previous. That's the only thing people ever remember him by is that one book he wrote like 15 years ago. And so with this story, he thinks that he can make his next big hit. And so he becomes desperate. He becomes so desperate to write this book that when he ends up finding the Super 8 footage of murders of several families in his attic, rather than turning in this footage of these horrible murders, Ellison decides to keep the footage and investigate the murders on his own in order to craft to, in order to craft the next big hit of his writing career. So he's forcing himself to write this new hit book out of desperation to get that fame back and to get uh, the wealth back and everything. And this kind of reminds me Sinister reminds me of The Shining where this one this author or this writer forces their family into what they know is a home or a house with a dark past. And he even begins to alienate himself from his family, just like Jack Torrance does in The Shining. Um, he begins to ignore his children, his wife. 
He's constantly locking himself in his office to work. He's staying up all night investigating and doing work while his family is asleep. He grows more and more distant and distracted from his family. So I see similar vibes between Ellison and Jack Torrance. Obviously, he doesn't go insane like Jack Torrance, but again, kind of a similar storyline. Yeah, he doesn't go insane, but he's become corrupted by his own greed and desire to to write the best book of his career. And put his family at risk. Yeah, and the most disturbing aspect of this film is the, the series of Super 8 snuff films of all these grisly murders. And it's so it was a really smart way to depict this by just making it home video footage. Because it makes you feel real, in a way, and it makes it feel tangible and like it, it it makes it more disturbing the film reels show different murders one is that family hanging from the tree and then the next is the family having their throats slit while they're sleeping in bed and then the next one is a family being burned alive in a car and then the next one is a family being drowned in a pool the last one is a family being run over by a lawnmower and these are all shot in pov style by the killer and so we're very curious who the killer is, and that's what Ellison wants to try, try to figure out. He wants to figure out who's committing these serial killer killings, and that's what he wants to write his book about. And he thinks that if he can be the person to catch this killer and write a book about it, he could be insanely famous and wealthy because of it. And what's even more disturbing about these Super 8 films is they're given very innocent-sounding titles, and also the dates encompass several years. So the first one is Pool Party, 1966, Barbecue, 1979, Lawn Work, 1986, Sleepy Time, 1998, Family Hanging Out, 2011. The length of time between all these murders is, is shocking, which means that if it is a serial killer, they got to be a very old person, at least around like 75, 80 years old to be able to have like the the strength and, and age to be doing these things. And they're still apparently active. And so that's what makes it even more terrifying. Bone chilling. And then also, through the footage, Ellison discovers images and symbols relating to Bagul, uh, including his uh, his symbol, which is found uh, written with, drawn with blood on the door of the family that's murdered. And then also there's that image, that really disturbing image of Bagul standing in the bottom of the pool, and he freeze frames it, and it's just, Bagul's got this incredibly disturbing design to him with those dark silhouetted eyes and that pale skin and the shape of his head and face is just really scary. And it's just, it's a great villain because we see just subtle hints of him and tastes of him rather than him having like his entire scenes in any kind of dialogue at all. Yeah. So Bagul, I think throughout the majority of the film is a very interesting new, like horror icon killer that they tried to create. And I think it had the potential to become a horror icon Obviously, the sequel to this movie was a bomb. It yeah. did really bad. So they kind of ruined any potential franchise with Bagul and with Sinister yeah. because the second one's so bad. But also, I love how they used him in the first like hour and a half of this film where you just get glimpses of him. That's what makes him more terrifying. The shot of him in the pool is like the scariest thing of Bagul so far that we've seen. Yeah. But then at the end of the film, when we see Bagul like in person in his full form, it doesn't really work Not the for me. Same. It seems a little too fake. He's just like seems like a guy. He honestly kind of looks like he's just a member of Slipknot. <laughs> like he just put his guitar down for a minute and he's just like standing there. So and he's like wearing a suit, which is it's an interesting uh, uh, monster design. But showing him full fledged like that at the end of the film just kind of took me out of like 
the possible iconic nature of Bagul. It didn't have the same quality as seeing him in, in images. It, had, it was more affecting in the Super 8 footage for sure. And then we learned through Professor Jonas, who Skypes with uh, Ellison a few times because he, he knows symbols. And he, he tells the story of Bagul and how he's an ancient deity who feeds on children's souls. Which is just a terrifying concept to think about. He says it so casually, too. Yeah. And the fact that we know that this is really happening. So it's just a horrifying thing to even think about. Also, I mean, I like Vincent D'Onofrio a lot. He's a great actor. And also, the deputy's pretty cool in this movie. He's a good character. Yeah. But these two characters are really just heavily there for like the cliche of exposition in this horror film. Which I think they could have done a better job getting all this information to... Ellison in a different way or to the audience in a different way. Mm. Obviously, you know, sometimes horror movies fall into cliches that they can't avoid. But other than other than that, like, this is a great film taking away some of the cliches it does with, like, the force exposition with these characters. Yeah, and it's got a, the really great twist at the end where we find out that all of the killings, it wasn't done by a serial killer or Bagul. It was actually done by all of the children in each family. So each family was killed by one of the members of the children. Because they were they were haunted and possessed by Bagul, and he got them to kill their family. And then having the ch- children kill their families allows him to bring them into his plane, where he can devour their souls for eternity. Yeah, and it's a really disturbing shot with like him with the daughter with his hand on her shoulder. Yeah, Bagul and the way. And then, ironically, Ellison spends all his time researching and studying these Super 8 films and becoming so obsessed with them that he eventually becomes the character and subject of one of the Super 8 films himself at the end of the movie. Yeah, it's a great climax. And what happened was Ellison put him him and his family into the link of Bagul's killings and possessions by what happened, what the deputy discovers that is that every family that was killed, they lived, they previously lived in a home where the other family was killed. And so... Ethan Hawke, by moving his family into the house where that family was killed, puts him and his family in line to be Bagul's next victims. So that's why, even though he moves out and they go back to their mansion, Bagul is still haunting them. And so the next family that moves into that mansion will end up being haunted by Bagul. So it's this chain of a, this, this linked chain that connects all of the murders together. And he unwittingly put his own family in it by being so arrogant that he put his family into the home where the first family was murdered. I think I like it more when when the villains and the evil demons or whatever end up winning in the end. It's fun. It's it's a great take it's a on time. horror movies. It's always like, oh my god. I, I know it's hopelessness. I, I mean, I know it can be hopeless and it's a ending filled with despair, but also it's like, oh man, it's fucked up. I liked it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good movie. It's a great horror film. Uh, Ethan Hawke really is what drives the movie. His performance is f- fantastic. Uh, I have no qualms with watching that guy on camera all day. He's the man. Um, It's a good time. You'll be scared shitless if you watch this movie. There's also a really cool fact that I didn't notice the first time seeing it, but Professor Jonas tells Ellison that Bagul can also take the shape of a snake and a scorpion, and it's shown in ancient images of Bagul. And Ellison, in the first act of the film, encounters both a snake in the attic and the scorpion in the house. So that's actually Bagul... Um, changed his form into those reptiles. 
Let's move on to the final film of the episode, Insidious, directed in 2012 by James Wan, who was a force in the horror genre for about a decade and a half. Yeah. Famous for the Saw franchise, The Conjuring, Annabelle. He's even done a Fast and Furious movie, and now he's like the leader and the director of Aquaman, which is huge. Big step up for him. Great filmmaker. Very illustrious career so far from the Australian director. Um, oh, he's Australian. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Insidious is about is a gripping story of a family in search of help for their son Dalton, who fell into a coma after a mysterious incident in the attic and is now trapped in a realm called the Further. They explore the paranormal and rediscover the past, the key to getting their son back once and for all. $1.5 million budget with a $100 million box office. This was absurdly successful for a small independent horror film. Was this Blumhouse? Yeah, Blumhouse. I think, I think this is one of Blumhouse's early big successes. This paid the bills for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and this this movie is very unique because we've seen so many paranormal movies, so many ghost movies. But what this movie did differently was it showed us the further, what it's called in this movie, the further, which is the realm in plane in which spirits live. And from their perspective, what they see when they're, what where, what kind of world they exist in. And it's this, this different dimension that is just surrounded by darkness where these these spirits who aren't ready to go to either hell or heaven they just live on this plane and time there is no such thing as time in this in this world and it's just a really fascinating take to see that perspective of the paranormal movie of where do these spirits come from and where do they exist when they aren't haunting the families yeah and the further in insidious definitely reminds me of the upside down and stranger things both very cool uh, different realities, sort of planes. Um, everything's similar in terms of structures and the layout of the world, except for the rules of the world. And so, like, everything's darker in the further, just like in Stranger Things, everything's darker and kind of has its own effect from that, the, the real reality. So, very reminiscent of Stranger Things. I'm sure they got a little influence from, from this movie. Mm. And it's like a haunted house version of the upside down in Stranger Things. If you're into haunted house movies, this is right up your alley because this is this is a great haunted house movie, but it's it's um avoids cliches big a lot and it ha- adds something new to haunted houses with the realm and the further. And also, technically, it's not a haunted house movie, which is what I like about it, because we learn that the reason why these hauntings are happening is because Dalton, the son, is actually haunted. It has nothing to do with the house and everything to do with him because, as we learn, he's an astro projector, which is a person who can um, separate themselves from their physical body and, and and then travel. Their spirit form can travel into the further. And I think it's a fun play on the ability. It's kind of like so Dalton does this and he thinks it's just like lucid dreaming. But we, what he's really doing is he's not lucid dreaming. He's traveling into the further every time he dreams because he's an astral projector and that connection that he has of being able to enter the further is what causes his body to be um is what causes the haunting around him and then also causes him to be captured by the demon inside the further because the demon wants to enter his body yeah and he got this ability from his father josh but Josh forgets what happened when he was a kid and forgot that he was going through the same experience. And he also got trapped inside the further. But um, he was taught to uh, bury it deep down and forget about it and, that, and suppress the memories of it. And so that's what prevented him from ever astral projecting again. 
I think the scariest aspect of this movie is the the main antagonist, that red faced demon. Very scary looking, um, disturbing. It's got like hooves for feet, and has a long tail. Looks like Darth Maul. Yeah, face like Darth Maul, and it's it's terrifying. And it's actually played not by an actor. The composer of the movie actually played the red faced demon in this. The specificity of that demon is it's Dalton's demon. And so what happens is Josh has to go into the further to go save his son. And so we learn that that's Dalton's demon. And then Josh has his own demon as well that he has to face. The, the bride in the black is Josh's demon. And before he goes into the further, they get the help of a psychic named Elise Rayner, played by Lynn Shane. And it's always fun in these paranormal movies when we get like the psychic team and the paranormal <laughs> teams to come check out the house and everything. And again, Juan gives us like more unique tools than we've seen in other movies. Um, so we get to see like the the camera they use to like pick up on spiritual beings and everything. And also there are those funny cliches of like the the assistants of the psychic are always like disheveled and comical <laughs> and just like clumsy as hell. Yeah, when they walk in the house, one of them's eating a hot pocket. It's just yeah, they're funny. <laughs> one of them is actually the writer of the movie. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And then they eventually Josh goes into the further and in order to save Dalton and for them both to escape is they both individually have to face their demons and face their fears. Josh ends up facing the bride in black and telling her to leave him alone, that he's not afraid of her anymore and that he's he's ready to move on with his life. And then obviously Dalton ends up going back to his body and they both both Josh and Dalton wake up in the real world and all of the ghosts have have been eliminated from the house. Or so we think, because so we there's think. that very ambiguous ending where Elise, the psychic, suspects something's wrong with Josh and she takes a, a camera and snaps a flash photo of Josh. And then Josh immediately strangles her to death in the chair. Renee runs into the house and sees that Elise is dead on the chair. And then there's a great final shot where... Renee is yelling for Josh because she doesn't know where he is, and then all of a sudden she he comes up behind her and places a hand on her shoulder, and he's and he's like, "I'm fine, honey. I'm, everything's okay," because she looked at the at the camera and saw that the woman in black has actually possessed his body, so she d somehow prevented him from going back into his body in the further, and she entered his body, which is a great ending for the movie because, like Sinister, the demon ended up winning. And this spawned uh, a good franchise so far, and it's a franchise that's uh, made over $500 million total between all the sequels, and you wish it, that Sinister was able to turn this into a successful franchise as well. But Insidious is a very cool movie. I love ambiguous endings. James Wan's a great director, did a phenomenal job with this film. It's, it's a really scary movie. Um, if you haven't seen it or if you have seen it, check it out ASAP because it's a good time, guys. Yeah, it's, it's a fun, unique twist on the ghost story. Um, and Juan did a great job. That wraps episode 30, Supernatural Horror of Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already. Follow us and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on Instagram and TikTok at Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Thank you so much. You all have a great day. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Take care.